Father, would you help me become the least important person at church on Sunday? Would I sacrifice my preferences and opinions for the sake of unity and love? Would I defer to another brother or sister? Would I serve rather than be served? Would I actually be humble in word, thought, emotion, and deed? Lord, would the words in my heart and the words that come from my mouth build up every person I speak with or about? Would every word I speak and think of speaking impart grace to my fellow church members? Would every person that I talk to feel like they have been encouraged and given nothing but loving grace by me after our conversation? God, as we gather again, would I truly consider how we can stir up another person to love and good works? Would I model the love and good works I want to stir up in others? By your grace and your spirit, help me, Lord. And Lord, we pray these same prayers for our brothers and sisters in Washington, D.C., at Restoration Church. God, bless them with remarkable, visible unity and love so that they, they would be renowned for the way they love each other and the way they love their neighbors during this difficult time. Lord, we pray that, that they would be carriers of the gospel as it spreads throughout Washington, D.C., like a virus, God, from, from person to person. Use Restoration Church toward that end. And Lord, now in your kindness, may the Spirit take the word and shape it for each one of us, each one here, each one watching. God, bring your grace and kindness to us. We need it. We need it so. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have a new addition um, to the Trotter family. Um, this week, uh, this is Lady. Um, our son Josiah adopted a seven-week-old little border collie lab pointer mix. She is seven weeks old. She is cute as a button, and she is totally untrained. Um, she isn't potty trained. She isn't crate trained. She isn't leash trained. She isn't chew trained. She isn't bite trained. And did I mention she wasn't potty trained? Um, she isn't trained to sit, come, wait, roll over, or speak. And I, and I think I may have mentioned she's not potty trained, right? She is totally untrained. Um, Plus, as you can see in the picture, she seems to think that she's a plant. Um, but no worries. Uh, I ran across the solution. Like this little guy with his pup, we're going to cut out the middleman and we're going to show the puppy training videos directly to the dog. And we think that that is probably going to solve all, all, of, our, all of our problems. Um, but as a result of this experience this week, uh, I think I have a better understanding of what Jesus was going through in Mark chapter 6 when he begins training a litter of 12 disciples. Okay? They are totally untrained. Okay? And in Mark 6, there's a definite turn in Jesus' ministry as he increasingly narrows his focus to training the 12. Mark 6 could be called Discipleship Training 101. Um, and it consists of three distinct modules that we'll, we'll dash through this morning. But as we look at them, this is what I'd like you to reflect on. Which module, which training is the one that I need to be enrolled in? And just see what the Spirit of God says to you as we walk through this passage together. So training module one, starting in Mark 6, verse 7, the sending of the twelve. 
He called the 12 and he began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now, let me uh, pause just a moment and say that notice that the 12 are called and then sent. And this is the paradigm for the church. We are called and we are sent. From the very beginning, we are a missional people. And it's an interesting priority that Mark underscores here about their ministry. Um, Later on, he's going to say that they taught and they healed. But the focus here that they were given authority over the unclean spirits, an authority that Jesus continues to share with his people even to this day. But what's interesting about this is the way Jesus equips them for this demon casting ministry. So think about it for a minute. You're going to train somebody for a ministry that's going to involve casting out demons. Um, how would you get them ready? How would you train them? Maybe some tips on how to cast demons into a herd of swine. Uh, maybe you would have a way to get the demons to tell you their name or you would have special incantations or recipes or techniques or something. But, but it's interesting, Jesus opts for none of these things. Instead, he gives them, one, a packing list and two, tips on what B&B to stay at. I'm serious. Watch. Watch what happens next. Jesus charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So literally, Jesus gives them a packing list and it's a pretty Spartan packing list. And some tips on lodging. What is Jesus thinking if he thinks this is how you train people? Well, just to bottom line it in the limited amount of time we have together, Jesus is training his disciples to trust God to provide not to rely on their own resources. He's helping them lean into God in times of need, not to rely on their supply list. And it seems that this is the most important thing of all when you're facing off with true evil in our world. We must lean into God and trust Him to provide for us. Now, I'm not sure that this was tremendously reassuring to the disciples, but don't, don't miss it. They did what Jesus asked them to do. They take their meager supplies and they go just as Jesus instructed and are pretty successful. Look at verse 12. They went out and they proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And then if you skip all the way down to verse 30, they report back into Jesus and say, it says the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. So here's the first point from the first training module. You are called and you are sent by Jesus to. Okay. That may mean uprooting your family. That may mean a radical lifestyle change. Your mobility may no longer be upward. It may be the opposite. You may have to take some pretty big risks. But you are called 
and you are sent, and Jesus is training his disciples to trust him to provide along the way. Are you trusting Jesus to provide for you along the way as you follow him? Or is it your goal to not have to trust him? To have enough resources stashed away for you so that you can basically say, I'm good. Jesus calls us and sends us and he provides for us along the way. Is this a training module you need to enroll in? Is this one yours? A really simple first step to train your heart in this is to pray the Lord's Prayer daily or more often, right? Because you're going to get to that little phrase that says, give us this day our daily bread, and you're going to lean into God and realize that you need to trust Him for your daily provision, no matter your own resources, that you need to lean into God and trust in a God who's eager to provide you. So training module one is trusting God to provide as we follow him in being sent. Let's look at training module two. So in between verse 13, where the disciples are sent out, and verse 30, where they report back, there's a whole other story sandwiched in between. Um, It's a pretty dark and seamy tale. Look at verse 14. King Herod heard of it, this mission of the twelve. For Jesus' name had become known, and some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So King Herod hears about this mission of the twelve and of the growing reputation of Jesus. When Matthew tells this, he says, he heard of Jesus' fame. So Jesus is becoming famous. And that's a bit unsettling to the neurotic King Herod. And before we explore that further, notice once again, Mark is putting in front of us the same recurring question, who then is this man? Who is this Jesus? Some say he's Elijah. Others a prophet. Some say he is John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Who do you say that he is? Herod's fear is that it's John the Baptist, risen from the dead. And so Mark now tells us the dark tale of Herod and John the Baptizer. Look at verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Duh, right? It's in there, it's in the Greek. Duh. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So now, If you think about this, this reads like a script for a really dark soap opera, right? Herod stole his brother's wife, Herodias. Um, That is a definite no-no on the name list if you're trying to name your next daughter or puppy even. Herodias is out. That is not somewhere you want to go. And to do this, he dumped his wife 
and she dumped her husband, which was Herod's brother, so that they could become a couple. Okay. Now to make things even creepier, Herodias is also Herod's niece. So, just be clear on this. Herod engineered two divorces to steal his brother's wife, who was his niece. And that's a union that would have been considered incestuous um, to the Jews of the day. John the Baptist, outspoken in matters of sin and righteousness, as all prophets tend to be, confronted Herod and condemned this union. And Herod's illegitimate wife, Herodias, nurses a grudge against John because of it and waits for an opportunity to remove this thorn in her marriage. In verse 21, an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And her mother said, the head of John the Baptist. Now, some of you being Baptist are reading this and wondering what exactly is this dancing that they're talking about here? Is this, is this clogging? Is that what they're talking about? Um, not exactly, okay. Mark spares us the details, but the, the context virtually demands an understanding that this is likely an erotic dance. Herod is running a kind of gentleman's club. Talk about an ironic name, right? A stag party, one writer called it, where his grandniece is the feature attraction. As bad as that is, Herodias is worse. She evidently sacrifices her daughter's honor to the darkest of ends, the murder of the greatest man who was ever born of woman, as Jesus calls John the Baptist. Look at verse 25. Herodias' daughter came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. So this oath-keeping by Herod is not integrity-driven. It is likely prideful, drunken, face-saving-driven. What it is. Verse 27, immediately the king set an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when John's disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. John the Baptist, by word, by life, and even by death, is always a pointer to Jesus. As soon as John the Baptist shows up in the New Testament, this is what John's saying. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, I have seen and borne witness this is the Son of God. And here in Mark 6, it's not John's words so much as it is his life and his death that show remarkable parallels between him and Jesus. Professor David Garland says, Just as John was handed over, so Jesus will be handed over. 
just as John was executed by a reluctant political leader at the instigation of a conniving individual who plotted his death behind the scenes, so Jesus will be sentenced to death by a reluctant political ruler at the instigation of hostile leaders who engineered his death behind the scenes. Just as Herodias seized an opportune time to carry out their evil designs, so Judas will seek an opportunity to betray Jesus to the high priests. Just as Herod was caught off guard by the response to his reckless offer, so Pilate will be surprised by the response to his offer of releasing a prisoner. The violent and shameful death of John heralds the violent and shameful death of Jesus. John is a pointer to Jesus and his impending death. But John is also a pointer for us in Mark's discipleship men. From John the Baptist's egregious death, we learn that discipleship, following Jesus, is costly, very costly. Sometimes it costs you everything. Jesus said, as I mentioned, that John the baptizer was the greatest man ever born. And here he sits, John the Baptist, this great man, rotting in Herod's prison, only to have his life taken by a lusty, incest-fueled vow to protect a corrupt ruler's vanity. If it happened even to John, if it happened even to Jesus, are you willing for it to happen to you? To truly suffer for following Jesus. See, that's why John's story, the story of his death, is sandwiched between the sending out of the disciples on mission and the report of the mission. This is what discipleship of life is like. It has a great cost. Professor James Edwards says, whoever would follow Jesus must first reckon with the fate of John. John's martyrdom not only prefigures Jesus' death, but it also prefigures the death of anyone who would follow him. So is this your training module, counting the cost? If so, how do you train to lay down your life? I would say a good first step is simply saying yes to the small sacrifices Jesus asks of you every day, even in your home or where you work. Say yes to generosity over more, just keeping getting more. Say yes to service over self-indulgence. Say yes to speaking up over fearful silence. Say yes to more time in prayer over endless social media. Say yes to reaching out to those who are different than you instead of just keeping your comfortable distance. Are you willing to suffer to follow Jesus, to suffer more? That's training module two. Let's look at the last training module together. And uh, kids, we have this little video to show you what it might have been like for Jesus to do this great miracle and feed 5,000 people. So watch this short video. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them 
because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. All right, let's go back to the beginning of that story. Verse 30, this is when the disciples come back from their mission and they report in. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. So upon hearing their report and this tremendous success of their mission, Jesus does something very unexpected. He invites them to leave the action and pursue rest. It's easy to think, what? This is a huge missed opportunity, Jesus. Strike while the iron is hot. Capitalize on the momentum. And Jesus, this is why Jesus is often a puzzle to hard-charging entrepreneurs. His kingdom seems to run on different principles, even different fuel at times. And so he says, at the pinnacle of their success, come away and rest. Come away and rest. And I think, as we'll see, Jesus has in mind more than a nap though a nap could be part of it. See, their pursuit of rest, as we saw in the video, is wholly derailed by the crowds that follow Jesus. But after Jesus does the miracle of feeding the 5,000, this is what he does in verse 46. After he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And this is what I think Jesus had in mind all along. Rest for the soul not just for the body, but rest for the soul that can be found only in the company of God. It's, it's interesting. This feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle by Jesus that's recorded in all four Gospels. And there are different motives as you read the different accounts that kind of shed light on why Jesus was intent on slipping away to pray. It may have been to avoid the impending persecution by Herod, or rest from a busy day of caring for thousands of people, um, or sorrow from John the Baptist's death. 
Any one or perhaps all of those could be driving Jesus and his disciples to a desolate place, it says. That's a place that's remote, away from people, especially toddlers, okay? That's, that's what that means. But let me ask you, when you are exhausted physically, emotionally, spiritually, when you're in a really, really busy, perhaps a successful season, or when you get devastatingly sorrowful news, is it your pattern and practice to steal away and get some soul rest in the company of your heavenly Father? Is that how you respond to those things? Or is that the thing that seems to always get squeezed out? Jesus' invitation to busy disciples still stands today, you know. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a lot. A while back, uh, I gave a very short, about a 10-minute uh, TED Talk at, at the seminary on this topic. We'll post that this week. And uh, if you want to think and be encouraged a little bit more, it'll be on our leader blog on our website um, uh, later on this week. Look at verse 34. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. It's interesting, Jesus is not annoyed at this interruption. Even though he needed rest, he wasn't annoyed to this invasion of his me time, you could call it. No, his response to the relentless bothering pursuit of him is that of compassion. Compassion such that he would act on their behalf. He would spend the day, the entirety of it, spending himself for them, healing their sick, tending to their needs. In verse 35, it says, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now, notice how they address Jesus here. They tell him what to do. Okay. This doesn't take the form of a request. There's no polite Lord that precedes it. They tell Jesus what to do. And watch what Jesus does in response to their directive. He gives them one. Verse 37, he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. So notice, notice the rhythm. Jesus takes their bread, he gives thanks, he breaks the bread and he gives it to his disciples. Okay, That's, that should sound really familiar. He takes bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, and he gives it to his disciples. It's exactly what he told us to do at this table. Okay? And even here, his sacrificial death on the cross is in view. And notice that Jesus very intentionally does not bypass the disciples. He could have dispersed the bread himself. It's only five loaves and two fish. I suppose he could have made it miraculously show up in people's pockets. But instead, he intentionally gives it to the disciples for them to distribute. This is a teachable moment in the lives of the disciples. 
All, all disciples, really. In verse 42, they all ate and they were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. They all ate and they were satisfied. This compassionate miracle by Jesus satisfies them all. And it's a remarkable contrast. Herod's feast, marked by arrogance and scheming and murder. Jesus' feast, marked by compassion and sharing and satisfaction. And then they pick up 12 baskets full. 12. One for each disciple. Remember, Jesus is training disciples here. He's showing them who he is. This has echoes of Moses feeding Israel through the manna or Elijah feeding the 100 with only 20 loaves of bread. But he's saying here, someone greater than Moses is here. Someone greater than Elijah, the prophet, is here. Noah Joyner pointed out to me also, there are echoes of Psalm 23 here. See if you can hear it. Um, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He he restores my soul. And you hear the language of a shepherd who, who satisfies and makes them lie down in green grass. Jesus is showing them who he is. He's the shepherd who cares and who satisfies. He's showing them if they follow him, if they'll trust him, he's going to use them in ways they cannot imagine. I wonder what Jesus might have in mind for us if we stop telling him what he must do and listen to him and trusted him to do something truly God-sized through us. You know, it's easy and it's common to fall into the trap of saying, of course Jesus cares. Of course he's satisfied. He's, He's Jesus. Just not for me just not right now. I I hear this often. I spoke to a pastor uh, this week who's struggling with this same, a variation of the same theme just this week. So is this your training module? To train yourself to believe that Jesus is the shepherd who cares for you now? That he can satisfy you now? How do you begin to do that? Let me suggest that you can begin by reflecting on what is truly true. You meditate on it and pray over it and ask God to let it shape you at the core of your beliefs. Take a passage that's meaningful to you about the way God loves his people, like this one from Isaiah 43, and put your, commit it to memory and put your name in it. So it could go like this. Now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Shanna. He who formed you, O Sam. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. Larry, I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, Carson, he'll be with you. And through the Through the rivers, Russ, they shall not overwhelm you. And let those truths be yours. Let them shape you. 
and what you truly believe. Fight for the truth that He cares and He satisfies you now. Jeremiah said it beautifully. He said, I will satisfy your weary soul, Watson. And your languishing soul, I will replenish. So, in Mark 6, Jesus is taking his disciples to school and he's training them to be disciples. Module 1, trusting God to provide as he sends them out. Module 2, counting the cost and being willing to suffer. Module 3, believing that Jesus is the shepherd who cares and satisfies even for you, even now. Which of those training modules is the one you should enroll in now. Let's just take a moment as we close and, and pray about that together. Would you bow with me? Lord, I pray your kindness upon us now. Let us hear from your spirit about our own soul before you and which of these things will help us follow Jesus more happily, more fully, more beautifully. Jesus, thank you for your kindness in selecting regular people, fishermen and tax collectors and people like us to follow you. Jesus, help us to trust you as you send us, to be willing to suffer because you deserve it and to believe that you care and satisfy even now, even me. Lord, have mercy upon us now through your word, by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And if you'll stand, we'll close our time together with a song of worship.